0: Please open your Bibles to the 27th chapter of Second Chronicles as we study this book of Scripture together. It's a short book in Chronicles, a fourth chapter in Chronicles, verses 1 to 9. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the 27th chapter of Second Chronicles. Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except that he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But the people still followed corrupt practices. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord and did much building on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers on the wooded hills. He fought with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And the Ammonites gave them that year a hundred talents of silver and 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley. The Ammonites paid him the same amount in the second and third years. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his ways and wars and his ways, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years And Jerusalem and Jotham slept with his father, fathers and they buried him in the city of David and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, which never fails to teach us. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to this portion of scripture and that we would be instructed in the way of godliness by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles presents the records of some of the greatest, though lesser known, spiritual giants in all history after the account of David in 1 Chronicle and the famous San- Solomon, in the opening chapters of Second Chronicles, we're introduced to such remarkable characters as Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah, men whose godly reigns played such a significant role in the Old Testament. Now, our chapter tonight, Second Chronicles 27, begins a new section in the book that is focused on the greatness of one of those men I have named, namely Hezekiah, king of Judah. In chapters 27 to 32, we will see the crises that Hezekiah faced uh, that developed in the reign of his grandfather, Jotham, and then came to ripeness in the reign of his father, Ahaz, and how he responded through faith in the Almighty God who defends his people. Now, the previous section in Chronicles told the stories of three successive kings, each of whom started well and ended badly. Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah. They taught us that we need to continue in the end the faith that we professed at first. These three kings in the new section we're studying do not follow that pattern. It's not true of them that they start well and end badly. Instead we see contrast between a godly father, his ungodly son, and then his extraordinarily godly grandson, Hezekiah, Andrew Hill. Summarizes that these chapters emphasize our individual responsibility before God, how each person and generation is responsible to God for our faith and godliness. Well, the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah spanned a period roughly from 750 BC to 686 BC. And that is a time that was shadowed by the mounting evil of the Assyrian Empire. The bloody reign of their conquering hero, Tiglath-Policer III, was going to take place during these reigns. It's a major event in the history of the ancient world. But the crises in international affairs was mirrored by an even more significant threat. It's one that was growing in the hearts of God's people. And we're going to encounter this danger in the short passage commemorating the reign of King Jotham who honored his God in faith, but was undermined by an unwilling people. So far as we learn, Jotham did all that he could to lead the kingdom of Judah in God's ways, yet three words signal trouble ahead. They're found in verse 2. The words are, but the people. But the people. In a book that mainly focuses on the actions of leaders, kings, people like that, We learn that an even greater force is exerted for good or evil by the people of God themselves as they either neglect or respond faithfully to the message of God's word. Well, Uzziah, who we considered in the previous chapter, reigned successfully over Judah for 52 years, only to fall at the end of his life to the sin of pride. And he spent the final years of his life in quarantine. Remember that God judged him for his presumption of entering into the temple and usurping the role of the priest with an outbreak of leprosy on his forehead that rendered him unclean. And so the control of the nation fell into the hands of his young son Jotham. Now his reign is summarized with the usual biographical material. He took the throne at age 25. He reigned for 16 years. Now, it seems that the first 10 of those years was a co-regency with Uzziah, and probably the last three was a co-regency with his son Ahaz. So the brevity of his account may reflect the, the brief period of time when he exercised sole rule over the nation, maybe as short as three years. Now, what matters most about Jotham is not how long he reigned, but how his reign stood in relationship to the Lord. And we'll see this in verse two, because he receives high praise. If you've been following Chronicles, you know, this is almost as good as it gets. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the assessment of this short reigning king. Now, sons of godly men do not always walk in the steps of their fathers, but Jotham did. He honored God, we read, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. But it's even more rare, it's not all that rare, to see sons following in the ways of godly fathers. But when they do, they often pick up the pitfalls of their father as well. Not many will sift the good and, and leave out the bad, but, but Jotham does. He, he learned, he, he patterned his life on the virtues of his father, But he learned the lesson of his father's sin. You Remember, Uzziah grew proud because of the great success he had and the honor paid to him. And as a result, he committed that great sin of intruding on the ministry reserved to the priest. I dare say the leprosy that inflicted his father, resulting in all those years of quarantine, made a strong impression on young Jotham. They didn't harden his heart, but rather they... They, they warned him, we read, that he is praised because he did not enter the temple of the Lord as his father had done. Matthew Henry summarizes Jotham's godly conduct. He walked steadily and constantly in the way of his duty. He was uniform and resolute in it, not like some that went before him who, though they had some good in them, lost their credit by their inconstancy. He doesn't begin and end well and end poorly. He is faithful throughout. Now, Jotham is the first king in several generations, uh, for for the first time in, in, in five or six kings, I would say, whose godliness is praised without any reservation. There's no, there's no, there's no caveat. There's no, there's no asterisk, There's no qualification. There's no but in his case. And following the chronicler's theology, you know, the chronicler is sending the message that the life of obedience receives blessing from God. That's what he's trying to impress upon his readers and their generation. And we're going to see, therefore, significant achievements in this man's brief reign. And first, they're in the area of building, as was true of his father. Look at verses three and four. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He did much building on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah and forts on the towers on the wooded hills. You remember, previous defeats, primarily in the reign of his grandfather, had resulted in damage to the city of Jerusalem. And His father Uzziah had busied himself in building the city back up, and Jotham continued that work. The chronicler highlights that he built on the gate of the Temple Mount and the wall of Ophel. Ophel was a hill to the southeast of the Temple Mount, uh, between it and the city of David. Now, this association, both of these building projects have some relationship to the temple grounds that suggests his piety. He took a special concern for the affairs of the Lord and his house. And by completing his father's building work, sometimes it's a great thing to complete the good work begun by somebody else because it's a good work. And his obedience to God strengthened him as he built up the nation's economy. He strengthened fortifications outside the capital. He built cities in the hill country, fortresses and towers on the wooded hills. Now, as you've seen in studying Chronicles, this is all a sign of God's blessing. A successful builder is one who's blessed by the Lord but an even clearer sign of divine favor is success in warfare, and Jotham also enjoyed that. Verse 5, he fought with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. Now, 2 Chronicles 26.8, the record of his father Uzziah, states that the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah. So it's theorized, I think plausibly, that this battle, this war, was a result of their suspension of the tribute they had agreed And based on Jotham's victory, they resumed the tribute. In fact, it seems that they paid a penalty. They paid back owings of their tributes. I say that because what's listed here is an enormous amount of wealth that flowed to Jerusalem as a result of Jotham's victory. Verse 5, And the Ammonites gave him that year 100 talents of silver. That's about three tons of silver, which is a lot of silver. 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley. Uh, that that comes down to 10,000 donkey loads of each of those coming on an annual basis as a result of God's blessing on his battle. And the upshot then of Jotham's piety, his great achievements, was a firm establishment of his reign. You know, you've seen this. it's not always been that case. There have been times when the, the house of David had been very tenuous, but not under his time. Look at verse 6. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord, his God. And so the results of his godliness were the stability of leadership he provided to the royal house. Uh, We should pay careful, but see, he he didn't just happen to lead the godly life, but he ordered his ways. There was an intentional pursuit on his behalf to walk in the ways taught by God. And Unlike his predecessors, his achievements and his success, therefore, did not corrupt his faith. J.A. Thompson writes, like his father, he became powerful with the Lord's help. But unlike Uzziah, Jotham did not forget that God was the true source of his strength all along. That is a very high compliment. He ordered his life very carefully according to the word. He never forgot that God was the source of his strength. Now the apostle Paul encourages believers that we really can get a lot done with our lives. He he reigned 16 years. Most of that's co-regencies with others, but he accomplishes a lot. Why? Well, Paul exhorts us, a verse I often think about, Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will have a harvest. And then Paul gives these vital lines, If we do not give up, persisting in godliness, ordering our ways according to God's word, leaving a godly life. If we don't give up, the day will come, and like Jotham, we will have a harvest. Cyril Barber commends him. He resisted the pressures to conform to the practices of those around him. He endured opposition. He he showed the kind of determination that eventually triumphs over the hardships of life. Now, what Jotham experienced in his public achievements will be equally true in our personal lives, our personal walk with the Lord, a careful attention to God's word and humble reliance on his grace will make us mighty, particularly in our personal battles against sin and evil. Well, given the uniform virtue of Jotham's brief reign, we're not surprised by the tribute shown to him in death. Verses 8 to 9, he was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and Jotham slept with his father's And they buried him in the city of David, so that Ahaz his son reigned in his place. Now, in short, he exemplified the very themes the chronicler is trying to impress upon his readers. Remember, he's writing around 475 to the community that has come back to Jerusalem after the exile. He's saying, here's a a little known person, but you know what? We have a lot to learn from his life. By walking in God's ways through faith in his word, he was made strong. His life was a blessing to God's people. There was honor for him beyond the grave. Andrew Hill summarizes, a simple lesson to be learned is that obedience to God pays dividends, both spiritual and material. Well, if Jotham could do it, by the grace of God, the chronicler's post-exilic generation could also lead godly lives that received the Lord's blessing. Yeah, if Jotham had strengthened Israel's damaged walls, but by the way, that was one of the issues they were facing in the chronicler's time, well, they could commit themselves to the same work. If God had given him victory over his foes, well, then they could count on the Lord through prayer and obedience of protecting them as well. What's more, if a life of humble faith had led Jotham to be buried with his fathers in the tombs of the kings in God's city, then our faith in Jesus will also grant us entry into eternal life beyond the grave. Well, we noted in the introduction of this chapter that Jotham begins a series of three kings in Judah who are marked by a growing crisis. It's going to come to four in the time of Hezekiah. And so far we go, well, where's the crisis? Well, the answer is going to emerge in the life of his son, Ahaz, who, who Uh, is the ungodly example and he exacerbates the problems. But within Jotham's own account, there is a brief statement that does warn of a great peril and it comes from within the nation. It's in verse 2, but the people still followed corrupt practices. Now the chronicler is referring to the practice of idolatry, which previous kings had tried to stamp out But even the most godly rulers had been able to do so completely. Now, some theorize that Uzziah, his father's violation of the temple precincts, had set a bad example and it had caused a wave of idolatry. I don't think that's actually likely. That wave of idolatry had been there for a long time. No, the source is in the people themselves. By following corrupt practices, they revealed the possession of corrupt hearts. Now the alarming statement here about the people's unwillingness to follow Jotham's godliness highlights the biblical duty of believers to follow holy examples provided to them by spiritual leaders. It is the duty of Christians to follow godly examples like King Jotham. Now, at a minimum we should you would think it would be the pastors and elders of the church but there's also veteran men and women of faith who set an example before the church in piety and sound doctrine and good works. Again, some commentators view this statement as expressing that Jotham was somehow weak, that he wasn't able to secure the people's support. But I don't think that assessment, he doesn't seem to be an extraordinary personality, I admit that. But the text does not lay the blame with him. And the reality is is that the best and strongest of leaders can only do so much. Their job is to provide leadership, godly leadership, to teach the word of God, to enact godly policies in a God-honoring way. J.A. Thompson reminds us that despite the chronicler's usual focus on the character of the kings, this book is mainly about the kings and other leaders. They're the ones who in general determine the nation's fate. Nonetheless, the citizens, the people, here are not absolved of responsibility for their own actions and attitudes. The one who's exonerated by this account is Jotham himself. That seems to be the point. He's saying that this king set a godly example. He pursued godly policies. So it is with Christian leaders today that they are exonerated if they teach faithfully, if they act and lead in a way that's consistent with God's word, but the people refuse to follow. Well, it is the job of God's people to follow their leaders in such a way that the example of those lives is reproduced in our lives. And, and in the New Testament, you see this principle over and over. The Apostle Paul said it a lot. He said it to the, the Corinthians church, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. The writer of Hebrews hits this theme very hard, very helpfully. He makes it a command, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's a very helpful statement. He says, think back to the people who taught you the word of God. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a teacher in school. Maybe it was a Christian who became your friend and were to search, to search the examples of leaders in the church. Especially preachers of the word, but notice what we're to learn from them. Not their personalities, we're not to join a personality cult, not their ministry techniques. But he says, follow the outcome of their way of life. We're to look at their lives, the, the cause of what, what happened in their life, how they handled things. We're look at the way that they died. And we're to say, what is the lesson to be learned from this example? What a benefit it is to know an older Christian, a more long-serving Christian, to be able to to observe it, as Jotham did with his father, to see what sins to avoid, but particularly to profit from their faith and the outcome of their life. Well, to the writer of Hebrews, the pattern of imitating godly lives of leaders is the well-worn path from life into glory. We learn what faith and patience are all about through the lives of other Christians, now, the writer of Hebrews makes a, a comment that he adds to this. That his point is that it, it always pays off. Following it, a godly example will always pays off, and the statement he makes is this: Jesus Christ is the same forever, today, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's actually not a statement about Christology. He's not making a comment about the eternal nature of Christ. His point is that we can confidently embrace the pattern of Christian life taught by the Bible and seen in the lives of godly people because Jesus never changes. And so the life of following Jesus 2,000 years ago is the same as the life of following Jesus today. It will be the same after after many of us are dead and gone. Should the Lord carry it, it will be the same another 1,000 years from now. By following in the path of the godly You're serving and following Jesus himself who was and is and is to come, who lives and reigns now in the heavens and by his spirit on earth. In fact, he is the leader we follow. He's the leader we serve. The one we trust is none other than Jesus himself. And he speaks in his word to us today as he did to others. His call is never superseded, never set aside. Now this principle of Christians following the example of and supporting biblically faithful leadership is if anything more important in the New Testament church than it was even in the Old Testament Israel. We see from the teaching of the apostles for instance that the leaders in the church are selected from within the church and by consent of the people in Acts 6 when those first deacons are, 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 are called The apostles tell the people to select them from their own number. Most churches today follow this procedure by granting the congregation the right to vote, to approve pastors, elders, and deacons. Well, how vital it is then that the people have biblical discernment and priorities, apart from which if the people will, this is where the the leadership cannot replace the people. The people will select the leadership and if the people are ungodly, if the people—if it's but the people are corrupt, well, the leadership in short while will also be so. Now, notice as well that the people of Judah not only should have followed the example of King Jotham, he may not have been the most impressive person, but he has a very good report here. He walked in the ways of the Lord, but they also had a duty to support his godly agenda. So the Bible teaches us we're to follow the example of godly leaders. We're also to support the godly reform, the, the, the efforts of those who are seeking to implement God's word. Now, we are not told here about Jotham's great efforts to stamp out idolatry. I think there must have been some of it because every other time in, in, this, in the book of Chronicles where we have a, a king who's committed in this way, he made efforts to get rid of idolatry. We're not told that, however. But the people owed it to him and to God to support him in biblical reform. Uh, later in Chronicles, we're going to encounter, in fact, the last of the great kings I mentioned is King Josiah. He's the last godly king of Judah. And, oh, K- Second Kings and Second Chronicles loves Josiah. We're going to love him, too. And he's the bomb. He is great. And he is strong. And he's not messing around. And he does major reforms. Unfortunately for us, we're also studying Jeremiah in the mornings and we've learned in Jeremiah that Josiah is this towering great figure but all the while Jeremiah is dealing with what's underneath and the people were not supporting him they were undermining him so as soon as Josiah dies i mean as soon as he dies everything goes back the way it was but the people even when they were led by a great man like Josiah they kept alive the spirit of the world they subverted the godly reform of even their best leaders. Now, examples of this abound in church history, of some of the greatest heroes of the faith being subverted by an unwilling, ungrateful, and often rebellious people. I think one of the most painful examples of this is the termination of Jonathan Edwards from his 20-year minister, ministry as pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the mid-18th century. Now Edwards is widely lauded as the greatest theologian America has ever produced. He's also known for his central role in the Great Awakening, particularly the early stages of the Great Awakening, that nationwide, actually continent-spanning revival that laid such a foundation for godliness in our own nation. Moreover, it was through Edwards' preaching that virtually every single person in the church of Northampton had come to faith in Christ. Every one of them received eternal life through the agency of the bold and faithful preaching of this somewhat irascible man, Jonathan Edwards. How surprising it is then that this same church demanded Edwards' removal And as soon as he was removed, they began assailing his legacy. One of the most painful things about their treatment of Edwards is he had two young sons who died. He planted a tree for each son in front of his church. And after he was removed, the malicious people cut down the trees in the churchyard, commemorating the life and death of his little boys. Now, how does this happen? Well, you may be thinking, well, Edwards must must have committed some grievous sin. Well, he did not. What was the problem? Well, the problem was that he called for a reform in the administration of the Lord's Supper. That's right. He realized that that church was not following the biblical pattern of the administration of the Lord's Supper. The question had to do with the admissions of unbelieving people to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And actually, as so often happens, the the popular practice that he felt the need to reform was the practice instituted by his predecessor, the great Solomon Stoddard, who, who, by the way, was Edward's own grandfather, and there was a passion in the church. They believed that the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. And so they would invite unbelievers to the Lord's table, thinking they'd be converted through it. Now, they're absolutely wrong. Edwards had all the biblical data on his side. You think of 1 Corinthians 11, 22 to 30, 30, 31, 27 to 31, which says we must discern the body. We must have a believing understanding of the, the atoning implications of, of what the Lord's Supper is representing. In fact, Paul says, otherwise we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But his attempt to reform the practice of the Lord's Supper ran contrary to the popular and long-standing practice of the church in which their identity was somewhat invested. Well, so fervent was the opposition to Edward's reform that although he wrote a book defending his views, the congregation refused to read it. He actually presented it to the elders, and they would not allow it to be distributed to the congregation. So he asked if he could give a series of lectures explaining his views. The elders said he could not. He ultimately did get a chance to give a series of five lectures on the subject, but to no avail. Now, as is usually the case, it's a somewhat more complicated case. One of the problems was the cousins who were also in the church, and there was some inner family division, and there was some envy of Jonathan Edwards. Some have criticized his leadership style as being slightly imperious. That may be true, but the art of the matter was a refusal to embrace a faithful pastor's attempt to reform his church. And so after 20 years... Of a great ministry, Jonathan Edwards was forced to resign. Never again would that congregation experience the outpouring of saving faith, the experience under his preaching. Never again would that congregation exert such a wide-ranging influence for the gospel as it once had enjoyed. Now, does Edwards' experience, together with the failure of Jerusalem and following King Jotham, does that mean the congregation should affirm all the agendas of their pastor? All the priorities of their leaders, well, such a conclusion is far from warranted. As a godly people are also required to discern when their pastor is teaching falsely and leading in unbiblical agendas. The great example is that of the Bereans in Acts 17. You know, the apostle Paul came and he preached the gospel, and it was new to them, and they asked Paul, this is a question no minister should ever resent being asked. Can you demonstrate from the Scripture the proof and the truth of the doctrine that you're teaching. Let me tell you, if you have a pastor who resents that question, I never resent someone saying, can you demonstrate biblically why you're doing it that way? Uh, We have a duty to do that. And the Bereans, they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Well, the best way to be the kind of Christian who is serving the church well and serving the biblical cause is to ensure that you're following in personal discipleship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my sheep know me, they follow me. Each of us, to be saved, must have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus. No, it's so important to be part of a godly church where the word of God is taught, where the the leadership's sound and there's godly examples, always imperfectly, but but substantially, that's so important, but it's no replacement for you, for me. To say, oh, I am following the the, the good shepherd, the great and chief shepherd, I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ and where God's word is honored sincerely by those in whom God's spirit is at work, even though we might come to different conclusions on some matters, there'll be that unity that so blesses the gospel. There will be no but the people under the rule of a godly King Jotham. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, this comment that godly King Jotham walked in the ways of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices, provides an occasion, I think, for us to reflect on the relationship, biblically, between Christian leaders and the people of the church. And the basic doctrine is given by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 12. Paul, in that passage, Ephesians 4, 12, he calls on the pastors through their teaching of God's word to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Through their teaching, they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, based on this and similar verses, Christians have long debated the proper relationship between ordained ministers and the unordained membership, also called the laity. And two errors have been propounded, the first of which is called clericalism. And this is the view that the pastor is the one who has all the authority and is responsible for accomplishing all the work. It's the pastor's job to perform the ministry, and then he himself builds the church. James Boyce, James Boyce writes, In this view, the work of the church is not is to be done by those paid to do it. The role of the normal member of the church is to follow docilely, he doesn't mention, and also to write the checks." They pay and you do the work. That's the view, clericalism. Now, historically, it's perhaps best represented by the priests of the Roman Catholic Church, although, dare I say, it is often found among Protestants. Many ministers promote this view by wanting to be in charge of everything and sometimes by holding their church in actual tyranny. An example in the Bible is Diotrephus. Remember when we studied the letters of John, John said that Diotrephus likes to put himself first. And he does not acknowledge our authority, Third John verse 9. Well, the problem with clericalism, well, one of the problems is that the church is impoverished because while Christ has distributed gifts to all believers, very few have the opportunity to exercise any of them. In his first epistle, Peter warned pastors not to be domineering over those under your charge. Well, that is generally the case under clericalism. Well, that's one error. As you can imagine, the other error is in the exact opposite extreme. It is called anti-clericalism. It's a reaction to clericalism. Now here the church strips the pastors and elders of their power. In many cases, does away with them completely and therefore does not benefit from Christ's provision of those who are called and gifted to teach and exercise spiritual authority. The book of Acts shows that Paul appointed elders in each of his churches. He entrusted these men to train and lead the flock. Acts 14, 23, chapter 20, verse 17. The pastoral epistles specifically command the appointment of leaders and their qualifications are laid out, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. Furthermore, Paul called specifically for gifted teachers to be set aside for full-time teaching and pastoral work, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. So the true model for ministry is neither clericalism nor anti-clericalism, but it's the approach that Paul set forth in that verse, Ephesians 4, 9, that I mentioned. John Stott calls it a dual approach to ministry. Ministry starts with the preaching and teaching of God's word by faithful and gifted pastors, but that then does not replace other ministries. It inspires them. It equips them, it mobilizes them, it provides the people with the biblical understanding and the motivation they need through the public and personal teaching of God's word. The pastor equips the saints, Paul said, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Stott saw this well-portrayed once in a church bulletin he saw. It was an Anglican church bulletin, so it uses their terminology. It listed the rector and gave his name. Next came the associate rector, then the assistant rector, and their names. Finally came the following ministers, the entire congregation. Well, That is, in fact, Paul's teaching. You have the ordained ministers, but everybody else is also involved in the ministry, equipping the saints for the building up of the church. Well, as we reflect on the short account of Jotham's brief reign, and particularly as we're going then to read on into the generation that follows... We will discover that this godly leader's efforts were deeply undermined by the corrupt practices of the people. You know, it doesn't have to be that way in our churches. The faithful preaching of God's word is designed by the Lord to bring both pulpit and pew together in a shared commitment to the work of Christ, to sound teaching and gospel ministry and zeal and life. It is the right and duty of church members to expect clear and faithful biblical exposition so that the flock will be fed from the true and wholesome nourishment of God's word. And when this happens, church leaders and congregations, they grow together in faith and godliness. One of the great joys I have. This is now my 15th year here. We've done some long series together. We started off with five years in John. Few of you can remember that. But we did, uh, some people say, remember when we, were, when we did Revelation together? I'll never forget it. And then we did four and a half years of John. Right now, it's maybe years from now. People will talk about, remember when that crazy pastor preached Jeremiah for something like three years in the morning? And, and we're, growing, we're growing together. People come to me after the Sunday morning sermon and say, I I couldn't believe what came out of that passage. I said, I couldn't either. I would have believed it on Monday. By, by, By Saturday, I do. We're on the journey together, being formed together, our hearts molded together. Why? The shared embrace of the ministry of God's Word. That's the way for us to go. And as we labor together, each with our calling and the building up of the church, teaching and sharing the gospel, praying for one another, and for God's blessing and all the ministries. The church is built up. There is no but-the-people problem, not in a major way. Both are so greatly needed, faithful leaders and godly, zealous, fully-equipped followers. It's only in such a partnership between pastors and elders on one hand, church members on the other, that the future of any church is made secure, bound together in a spirit of love and prayer. Embracing together Paul's urging in Colossians three sixteen, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's a plural you, in y'all. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Father, we pray for these things in our midst, and we are but sinners. And we look, we've seen so many leaders who've gone astray. In this passage, we have the followers who go astray. Well, Father, we appeal to you in Jesus' name that you would protect our hearts, that you would overcome the tendency of sin and, and destructive things like pride or envy or imperiousness or rebellion. Father, we pray that Christ would be the king, who rules in this church, that he would reign in and through his word. Make us all in this congregation servants of the word of Christ, that we together, following him, would know the truth and we would enter into the the experience of that gospel freedom that he is so willing to give. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.